Good morning, North Boulevard. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us at Second Service, those of you who are present at uh, East Campus and also lots of you online. Glad you're here. You'll be happy to know that we had an outdoor service just before the one you're watching now. And I think the number was 440 at East Campus and 200 and 70 at West Campus. So we'll have maybe as many as 800 people in person today. That's just kind of exciting. And I've said it before, uh, you don't need to hurry back. You certainly don't want to, uh, we don't want you to feel pressured to come back. At the same time, we want to gradually and safely begin to sort of restart things and, uh, and make sure that we just make sure that nobody loses the encouragement that all of us need in order to be faithful to Jesus. I'm so glad you're with us. Thanks so much for joining us. We've been working on this series this is my story, and my goal in the series is to provide us with the biblical narrative in which we live. And it's because there are so many other stories that are being told around us that we have to stop and ask the question, okay, what is our story? How do we interpret the things that we face in life from where did we come and to where are we going, and therefore, how are we to live now? And today we start on the pinnacle of the story, and that is Jesus and how he fits into the grand story of our life. So let me just tell uh, a quick story to sort of set up what I want to, the point I want to make today. It was in the winter of 1991, so it was January of 91, that Peter and Cindy Patton and myself and three of our friends traveled to Novosibirsk, Siberia. We went to the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the old Soviet Union. Uh, I was, at the time, I was teaching part-time at Vanderbilt's Divinity School and also at, at Lipscomb's Bible Department. And so we had been invited, I had been invited to come and teach a course if, the professor said, we would bring some Bibles which we'd use as textbooks. Now remember, most people had never seen a Bible there because the Christian religion was largely illegal in the uh, Soviet Union. So what we offered is we'll come a group of seven of us and we'll bring 10,000 Bibles, which God gave us the privilege of being able to do. What ended up happening is we planted a church there, and the church is still, 30 years later, the church is still there, it's still thriving, so it was a really great trip. But here's what I want to tell you. I was shocked when we went to the Soviet Union, which is a socialist country, it's Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Um, I was shocked at how, um, how much despair there was in the old Soviet Union. I think I had come to believe that because they have a first world military, the Soviet Union, they would have a first world economy. That's not the case. When we got there, what we discovered is that though, though their military was first world, advanced and massive, the economy was third world. Most people were poor. If you didn't have a government job, you were probably going to be poor. Uh, the bread lines were um, disheartening to see people would sometimes have to get up at 4 a.m. to make sure they got in a line so that they could get maybe half a pound of bread for the day. You would just think to yourself, surely not, not in the, 21st, the 20th century at that time could this possibly be happening, but it was. It was not just that, but people had a certain despair about them. Uh, so you often hear about the soulfulness of the Russian people, and uh, my, my guess is that part of that soulfulness was just the sadness that came from living in a government where everything was controlled. A government where you were never sure about what you wouldn't get a knock on the door at night and you or maybe a family member would be hauled off never to be seen. Again, the KGB were everywhere and everyone was taught if you hear someone questioning the government, turn them in. This happened not by the thousands and not by the hundreds of thousands, but by the millions. 
In fact, when we were there, we were told not to um, say anything critical of the government in the apartment that they gave us because we were told by our hosts the apartment had already been bugged by the KGB and we had agents assigned to us to follow us around. I went to, um, I went to a person's house one night, so I'm trying to get my, my story to a point here. I was hosted one night by a professor. She was an engineering professor uh, at the University of Nova Sibiris that designs Russian MiGs. That was her job. She designed fighter aircraft. Uh, an engineer. And that particular night we were traveling and so each one of us was given a place to stay and I was assigned to stay with her. And as I stayed there, she, um, she was opening her cabinets to feed supper and it was just, again, I'm not trying to be negative. I couldn't believe how empty the cabinets were. She had nothing. So this is an engineering professor, top of the school, living in poverty like I hadn't even seen in Honduras. She had one old tattered bag of barley, which she took out and boiled, and we ate it like you might eat oatmeal. We ate it for supper, and the next morning we ate it for breakfast. And she apologized to me, she said, for the, the fact that they didn't have any food. And I just said something to her without wanting to be negative or critical. I just said, how, like, how do you all do this? And her words were, these are the words that kind of haunt me. And the reason I'm bringing this up, she said, well, we survive. I thought a lot about that. Is that really all God wants for humans? Is that the best it's ever going to get? That in this whole broken world, the best we ever can hope for is we survived. So the story of the Bible, your story, is a story that you were not created merely to survive. You were created to thrive. We were created to flourish. We really were created to have a wonderful life. That's how God created us. That's why when God created us, he put us in this, I've used the word utopia, he put us in this utopia, this garden of Eden. In the garden of Eden, we weren't supposed to be hungry or go sick. In the garden of Eden, we weren't supposed to have conflict and war. We, we wouldn't have needed an army in the garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, we, uh, Sean and I both had to change clothes after that previous service because even though it was only 78 degrees or whatever, it was a hot 78. We weren't supposed to sweat. In the Garden of Eden, you weren't supposed to sweat. There weren't going to be weeds in the Garden in the Garden of Eden. Instead, we were going to walk in the cool of the evening right in the presence of God himself. That's what we were designed for. And as I've said in previous lessons, that's why our heart continually measures where we find ourselves today by where we think we should have been. That's why we say we shouldn't get cancer. You know, if Darwin is right, if all there are are chemicals in motion, if there is no God, who says you shouldn't get cancer? But all of us know deep in our hearts there's something wrong with that. We know deep in our hearts I wasn't supposed to die. We know deep in our hearts people weren't supposed to mistreat one another. Deep in our hearts, we know that having children starving around the globe, that wasn't supposed to happen. Because each of us has in our genetic disposition built into us by God Almighty, each of us has a vision. It's supposed to be better than this. But I'm concerned that many of us, many of the world at least, has, like my old Soviet counterpart, just settled. I guess this is the best it's going to be. I guess it's just always going to be broken like this. I'm here to tell you Jesus came to show us it's not going to stay like this. He came to show us that God has a plan to restore us to the Garden of Eden. He's not done with us. 
This makes the story of Jesus a critical moment in your story. Let me pause for a moment and ask you the question that we've sung many times, those of us who are older growing up. You remember the song, why did my Savior come to earth and to the humble go? Is that right? Why did my Savior? Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus come? I want you to answer it. I'm going to pause for a minute. You don't have to yell it out. You at home. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? Why Jesus? Why Jesus? I'm asking the question because I really think that even Christians sometimes forget this part. Why did Jesus come? I mean, couldn't God have just said, hey, you know, follow the law, be done with it? Why did, he have to, why did Jesus have to become human, come to earth, live a life of three years, not just a couple of months, but three years, then die? Why? Why this? And I want to show you the answer to that today in the next couple of weeks. But today I want to focus on what I think is a much more holistic story that will help you understand your story. So let me put it this way. I think for a lot of us, we have a truncated view of the gospel. It's not wrong. It's just so abbreviated that it's not really right anymore. It's just been so cut short. Let me tell you what it is. For a lot of us, our view of the gospel is this. Listen, this should sound familiar because that's what a lot of us grew up with. Jesus came to die so I could be forgiven of my sins and go to heaven when I die. I just want you to know if that's your story, that story is so condensed and so compressed, it's so truncated, it's so shortened that it's almost false. Not quite, but almost. If all Jesus did was to come to die so I could be forgiven and go to heaven, why did he have to spend three years on earth first? Couldn't he have just done that in a week or so? The truth is Jesus came to do a whole lot more than just die so I can be forgiven and go to heaven when I die. This is what has to change for us to live the kind of robust life that we've been challenged to live by Scripture. For you to have the complete narrative of your story, you need to understand what the Gospels say Jesus came to do. And this is the very first opening remarks about it in the Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, the first of the Gospels. Notice that Matthew, when he's introducing Jesus' ministry, he does not say, Jesus came forth to die for our sins so that you, when you die, could go to heaven. It's a true statement. It's just only a part of the truth. Listen to how the Gospels actually talk about what Jesus came to do. The Gospels actually say Jesus came not just to die so you could go to heaven. Jesus came to launch the kingdom of God here on earth. I want to say that again because it really matters. Jesus came to start here on earth the reign of God that we gave up when we sinned in the Garden of Eden. He came to bring it back. Opening words. Jesus' ministry, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Well, verse 17 is the one I'll make reference to. But if you just read the three verses before that, Matthew says that Jesus had gone up to Galilee. He was staying at Capernaum because, Matthew said, the Old Testament had prophesied that a great light would come out of the Galilee. And sure enough, it did in Jesus. And then Matthew says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, watch this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the whole message of Jesus. Notice that the message of Jesus isn't, believe me, so when you die, you can go to heaven. That's okay. That's going to happen. I'm not against that. Make sure you don't hear me say that's the wrong message. It's just such an abbreviated message. You don't get the full message. Over a hundred times, over a hundred times the Gospels say 
Jesus came to bring the kingdom. A hundred times. Do you even know what the kingdom of God is? You see, for a long time, a lot of our churches didn't even talk about the kingdom of God. We didn't even know what it was. That's really true. When I was growing up, we hardly ever heard the phrase kingdom of God. We talked a lot about the church. We talked a lot about sin. We talked about salvation. I don't remember hearing about the kingdom of God. In fact, the matter is, I went through four years of undergraduate Bible education and hardly heard anything about the kingdom of God. It wasn't until some years later that I began to realize over and over again, the Bible says Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. What does that even mean? What is the kingdom of God? What is it that Jesus brings that we could call the kingdom of God? What I want you to get out of this lesson is this. So I asked several people at the first service, by the way. So first service is outdoors. It really was awesome, but it was pretty sweaty out there. And people were stretched pretty far down, almost down to the street. So I asked several people afterwards, I said, what was the point of my sermon? By the way, if I ever ask you that question, I'm not testing you, I'm testing me. Because if you don't know the point of my sermon, I didn't do a very good job. And um, I just hate to tell you this, but I got about six answers and most of them were, uh, I'm not real sure. Um, So I'm not sure I did a great job. So I'm just going to make sure you get it this time. Because we'll have lots of you this time. My point is this. Jesus comes to restore here on earth the utopia we lost in the Garden of Eden. That's called the kingdom of God in the Bible. Jesus came to plant the seeds of heaven, of heaven here on earth. So it's not just what happens when I die. He expects me to start living in an Eden here on earth, even though earth is not Eden. He wants me to begin acting right now like heaven has already dawned. Because in fact, he says, it has. That right in the middle of a world that's in rebellion, a world that's broken, a world that is dystopic, a world where there's sin, a world where there's disease, a world where there's pride, a world where there's violence, right in the middle of that, Jesus comes to say, I want you to repent and I want you to live like the reign of God is already here. Because it is in the person of Jesus. So my challenge to you is going to be this. It's going to be exactly what Jesus says. Repent. Repent and live in the reign of God from now on. Stop living like the dystopic, broken world around you and start living like Jesus lives. So this was already predicted in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 9. When Isaiah looks down and he sees Jesus coming, so remember last week we talked about these Old Testament prophecies. Jesus doesn't just say that there's going to be a son born to us and when he comes he's going to forgive us of our sins so we can die and go to heaven. He doesn't just say you die and go to heaven. I'm not against it. I just want you to know that's so abbreviated that it almost miscommunicates. What does he say? When this son comes, what's he going to get? He's going to have a government. Isaiah says when Jesus comes, God's going to give him a government. He's going to have a kingdom. And it's going to be a just and a peaceful kingdom. That Jesus is going to bring the reign of God back to us. What I want to do is restore for us the language that we're living now in God's kingdom. You don't have to wait to the end of time to get the kingdom of God. You've already got it. The only question is, are you living as a citizen in it? Or are you still living like the citizen of somebody else's kingdom? So what is the kingdom of God? Well... The Bible actually presents it in two ways, and I want to just real quickly point these out. On the one hand, the Bible talks about the kingdom of God simply as anywhere the will of God is being done. So remember Jesus in the um, Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, 
uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the best definition of the kingdom of God. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is, when he says your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what he's saying is whenever you live heaven's rules, you are practicing the kingdom of God. So we shouldn't think that the kingdom of God is over there somewhere or it's a particular place. We shouldn't even really confuse the kingdom of God with the church. The kingdom of God is wherever people submit to the rule of God in their lives. When you do something awesome for God, that's the kingdom of God. That's the reign of God or the rule of God in your lives. In the Bible, it can be both here and still to come. Let's go back again to Matthew 4 and verse 17. Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a really fascinating phrase, at hand. Because at hand is not the same thing as saying in hand. There's a sense in which the kingdom hasn't fully gotten here. It's not in hand, but it's also not far away. It's at hand. It's within reach. And what Jesus is teaching us is what I'm about to show you in these scriptures. That on the one hand, the kingdom of God is already dawning on us. The seed of the kingdom of God has already been planted. It was planted by Jesus, and it ought to be planted in your heart even right now. And so, for example, in Luke chapter 17... A question comes up about the kingdom of God and says, look, no, no, no. Jesus says, no, don't think of the kingdom of God as something you're going to say, well, it's right over there or here it is over here. Instead, Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. In a sense, he says, it's already here. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, there's a question about by whose power Jesus drives out demons. And he says, look, if you see that it's by the Holy Spirit that I drive out demons, then the, Holy, then the kingdom of God has already come. So Jesus has already, in one sense, brought the kingdom of God with him. But there's another sense in which Jesus hasn't fully brought the kingdom of God. We're living in a tension. We're living between the origins of the kingdom of God and the culmination of the kingdom of God. The seed had been planted, but they have not borne fruit yet. So we have a text like this, Luke chapter 19. They're listening to this. He tells a parable because why? The concern is, he says, people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And then he tells a story by, he says, no, the kingdom of God will not be culminated until after the master leaves and comes back. The kingdom of God won't be culminated until Jesus returns. Here's another way to put it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, where Jesus is talking about the resurrection. And he says, at the end of the resurrection, Jesus will defeat all enemies, and then he will hand a kingdom over to the Father. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. In the Bible, the kingdom of God is something that has already been planted but it has not taken over the world yet. But it's going to. And what the Bible calls us to do is to begin living now like we're going to live when the kingdom is consummated. So I just want to ask, am I making sense? It's a bit of a mystery. We really are called by God, start living now like you're in utopia even though you're not. Start living now like you're going to live when you get to heaven, even though you're not there yet. Start living now in such a way that you can show the whole world this is what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. By the way, wasn't that the message of the rest of the Bible? You remember? God said to Abraham, I want to make you a blessing for all nations. The goal for Abraham's righteous living was, I want to show everybody else what it's going to look like. 
Then when God calls Israel, he says, it's not because you're smarter than anybody else. You're not stronger than anybody else. You're not better than anybody else. I'm calling you, he said, so you can be a light to the nations. The reason God called Israel is so that they can show the rest of the world this is what it looks like when heaven is obeyed. And then he sends Jesus. And Jesus comes to show us this is what it looks like to live in heaven. So let me just make an observation or two about that. Because this is the challenge I want to give you. And most of you are following Jesus already. That means most of you have already done what Matthew 4, 17 says. Most of you already repented. Most of you have already said, I'm not going to live by the world's ethics anymore. I'm not going to live by the world's untruths, which they call truth. I'm not going to live by the world's ugliness, which they call beauty. I'm not going to live by those standards anymore because now I belong to God's kingdom. But when you made God's kingdom the central part of your story, all those difficult passages in the Bible are no longer difficult. Let me tell you what I mean. You read the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 4, 17 announces that the kingdom of God is coming. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you read some of the most remarkable, counterintuitive, ironic, almost impossible statements. You remember this? The Sermon on the Mount says that if your eye offends you, gouge it out and throw it away. Did Jesus really mean that? The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn to them and let them hit your left cheek as well. Does Jesus really mean that? In the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that if we are being persecuted, not only should we be glad about it, but we should pray for the guy who's persecuting us. Really? Like, you know, occasionally I get harassed because I'm a minister. Harassed. Not much. And harassment's even then kind of a big word. But even then, it's really hard for me to want to pray for somebody who's tormenting me. Does Jesus mean all that stuff? When Jesus tells us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, does he really mean that? Let me tell you something. When you understand that when the heavenly kingdom of God fully arrives, all of these things will be characteristic of how we live, the Sermon on the Mount suddenly makes sense. I'll give you an illustration. Jesus says this. He says, pray for your enemies and bless those who persecute you. Well, you just need to know that when heaven's kingdom finally arrives, there won't be any enemies. We won't have enemies. At the resurrection, the heaven and earth that's restored, the new Jerusalem, the new bodies, there will be no enemies. So what is Jesus teaching you? He's saying, go on and start now living with no enemies because that's how it's going to be in my kingdom. That's what he means by that. He's saying, even though it doesn't feel like it's going to work in a broken world, live like heaven is already here. And when heaven gets here, you're not going to have any enemies, so stop acting like you got enemies now. That's his whole point. That's why it's so counterintuitive, because we really are going up the down escalator. The broken world is pushing back against the kingdom of heaven. But we're supposed to be examples to the world. This is what heaven's going to look like. When he teaches us to forgive those who trespass against us. It is counterintuitive. You know, I have to forgive maybe just to get along or I forgive because it brings me healing. But Jesus doesn't even give those for reasons. He just says, look, this is what you do. You forgive. Why? Here's why. Because when heaven's kingdom fully gets here, there will be no more grievances. So go on and start acting like there are no grievances now. That's what he's doing. He's bringing heaven's ethics forward into our lives. He's saying, imagine you're in utopia and start living that way right now. 
How about greed? Well, Jesus teaches us to care for the poor and not to be greedy. Don't be selfish. Don't be greedy. Don't hoard your money. What difference does it make to them? And here's what difference it makes. When heaven finally gets here, when the consummation of the kingdom gets here, there will be no poor people. The treasures, the wealth of the nations will flow in. By the way, Adam Smith got his title of his famous economics book, the opposite of Karl Marx, by the way, The Wealth of the Nations. He got it from the book of Revelation. We're at the very end of Revelation, the very last chapter, we read in the opening verses that the wealth of the nations will flow in when Jesus restores our Garden of Eden. Since heaven is going to be full of God's treasures, there will be no poverty. So start acting now like there's no poverty, which means quit hoarding things. Quit being greedy. You don't need to be greedy. You're headed for a kingdom where there's no reason to be greedy. It is so wealthy where you're headed that they use gold for asphalt. They paved the streets with gold. That's what all this upside-down ethic is about. Jesus is saying, you're already in a kingdom. Act like you live in my kingdom. And stop living in that kingdom. That's what repent means. <laughs> repent, the kingdom of heaven has come. He's telling you, though you are an immigrant in this world, go on and live like you belong to the next world. Live like you belong to the next world. Over and over again, this is what he teaches us. Though in this world people use each other and take advantage of each other, men abuse women for sexual pleasures, Jesus says, it's not going to be that way in the next world, so stop doing it this world. You're in my kingdom now. In my kingdom, men don't use women for lust. In my kingdom, men don't abandon their babies and let them grow up with rage-filled hearts. They don't abandon their daughters and let their daughters grow up, spending the rest of their lives wondering, does anybody really love me? Jesus says, in my kingdom, they don't do that. So he's telling us, go on and start acting that way now. Live by my rules now. Embrace my reign now. Live now like the kingdom of God is here because, in fact, it is. The seeds have been planted and it's only a matter of time before his garden takes over every other plant in the garden of creation. When we do this, brothers and sisters, when we do this, we show the whole world what heaven's kingdom is going to be like. That's why it matters. We now get Abraham's commission, his commission, go be a blessing to all nations. Now we get to do that. We get Israel's mission to be a light to the nations. Now we get to do that. This is why each one of the Gospels ends with some sort of mission. John says, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. He says that to you. I'm sending you now. Mark's Gospel, go preach the Gospel to all nations. Luke's Gospel ends with the words, you will be my witnesses of all these things. And Matthew's Gospel ends with, now go therefore and make disciples of all nations. God is calling us as citizens of His kingdom to go show the world this is what it's going to look like when He gets here. And we get to live that life now. It's not going to be easy. In fact, Paul says in Acts 14 when he's visiting the churches that he had planted in what we call Turkey, he says, through much hardship, we enter the kingdom of God. You know why it's hard? Because we have to live like utopia is here even though it's not. We turn the other cheek even when they do hit us because we want them to see this is what it's going to be like. We forgive even when they don't deserve it. We love even when they're not lovable. We care for the poor even when we think to ourselves that they just get a job. 
Those are the things that we do because we belong to a different kingdom. So I'm going to go back to my Russian illustration for a moment. It was amazing to me how the Russian people appeared at least to me to have internalized so much of the despair, like that's just what we have to do. Like they had no idea there was another world. In fact, we heard this everywhere we went. People would say that they knew we were Americans before we, long before we got in their presence. They could see us down the street coming. They knew we were Americans because they said, you smiled. And it was odd. I never saw anyone smile. I mean, you'd have to really dig to get somebody to smile in the Soviet Union. They had internalized the poverty. That for so many people, they just seemed to think, well, I guess this is the way the world is. It's just a, just a dreadful world. And I wanted to say, no, it doesn't have to be this way. This is what the church is supposed to say to the world. It doesn't have to be this way. Down in Red Square, there is one of the world's largest shopping malls. We went there. It's, it's called Gum, G-U-M, like chewing gum, but they call it Gum. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of square feet, this huge shopping mall. It's a beautiful uh, building and a most beautiful place in Moscow, Red Square. It's a fantastic place. And as we walked through thousands of square feet of that shopping mall, what shocked me was that there were empty shelves in every single store. I might be a loaf of bread in one store, maybe a pound of salami or something in another store. There was nothing in there. And I just thought, tell me y'all aren't used to this. Tell me you're not okay with it. How can you be okay with this? And I want to say to the world, how can you be okay with all the brokenness? God's offering us a better way. We don't have to adapt to the brokenness. We can aspire to the way God wanted the world to be from the beginning. We get to show the world you don't have to get okay with the brokenness. It can be better than this. Our translator was a man by the name of Vladimir Fiet. We would say Vladimir. He had come a couple of years before, um, before he worked with us. He'd come to the U.S. And he told me one time, uh, while we were together. We were probably looking at this store. I don't remember when he said it. He said, I'll never forget the first time I come to the U.S., growing up in the Soviet Union all of his life. His father, by the way, was some kind of computer genius, worked for a university there. He said, I'll never forget the first time I walked into a Kroger. Now, you walk into Kroger and like, you know, irritable that you can't find the kind of taco shell you want or whatever. He said, the first time I walked into a Kroger, I fell to my knees and sobbed because he said, I had no idea there could be so much food for so cheap. Here's the deal, guys. The bountiful banquet of God is available to us. It makes Kroger look small. And the world is settling for an empty store? We get to show the world that the kingdom of God has started and one day it's going to be paid with streets of gold. There will be no more suffering, no more tears. The young man, the young woman will come with their tambourines. The old man will come and throw his walking stick away. The garden will be so lush that the guy harvesting will step on the heels of the guy who is sowing. There will be wine flowing from the mountains. There will be joy forevermore. That's our bounty. That's the kingdom of God. Our story is the story of Jesus who came and said, I'm bringing it now. Start living now in my kingdom. Amen. That's what we get. So we want to be, we want to be people who have demonstrated this is the kingdom of God. 
If this stirs you to want to repent, if you think, oh man, I've been living too much a slave to an old model, the propaganda of the old world, and I want to live in the kingdom of God, we'll just give you a chance while we sing this next song. You can come down and tell us we're still baptizing. The virus hasn't stopped us. And we're still willing and capable to repent and say, Lord, I want your kingdom. So we'll give you a chance to let us know if we can help you with that. Let's stand up together. Sean, let's sing.